Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an Asian, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't, blacks don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourself up. I told that five-story building, you're setting yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economics. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 to 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money from the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor, you t- the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35,000 of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75 or 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you. And O'Reilly, they can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisoners in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate them. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, when they, when they over incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march, a demonstration. We're going to march. March what? Who cares? Marching has never changed anything. If white immigrants can come to this country 50 years ago with nickels and dimes and no education, and come here and pool their little nickels and dimes and no education and set up little stores, develop these stores into larger stores, develop this into an industry which creates job opportunities for whites. Since Lincoln was supposed to have freed the black man a hundred years ago, and today the black man, according to the government economist, has spending power of $20 billion per year. We feel that with the black man spending $20 billion a year, not setting up any businesses, not creating any industry, not creating any job opportunities for his own kind, he's not in a moral position to point the finger today at the white man 
and tell the white man that he's discriminating against him for not giving him a job in factories that he has he himself set up. If the black man has $20 billion, and these so-called Negro leaders are such geniuses that they can integrate white restaurants and integrate white factories and integrate, force themselves into that which the white man has set up, they should use this same ingenuity to show the black people how to pool our wealth and set up something of our own. And then we won't have to force our way into his anymore. One more thing I would like to point out concerning what he said about 125th Street. We don't waste our time on 125th Street, but you can reach more people in the street who want to change than you can in the bourgeoisie society, the bourgeoisie church, and the bourgeoisie circles. We, our program is directed toward the man in the street. So we spend our time in the street, and what we do with that man, instead of trying to change the white man in your mind and make, make you accept us, we change the mind of the black man and make him accept himself. And as soon as he accepts himself, He'll solve his own problem. He won't be trying to force himself into your factory and into your bedroom and into your kitchen.
This is Coronation Park, a squatter camp in Krugersdorp, South Africa. Although impoverished blacks in the region far outnumber their white counterparts, this camp is one of a growing number of townships populated mostly by Afrikaners, white South Africans. In the 19 years since the fall of apartheid, more and more whites are coming face to face with poverty and social meltdown. I'm sorry it's racist, I'm not a racist, but the blacks come first and then the whites. And even highly qualified whites don't even get a position in South Africa. A controversial affirmative action policy sees blacks take precedence over whites on the job market, giving some people little choice but to move into tents and caravans in camps such as this one. Apartheid was a problem, um, but this is the only country in the world where the majority has got affirmative action. America has got affirmative action, everybody has got affirmative action, but this is the only country where the majority has got affirmative action. Post-apartheid governments have struggled to achieve redistribution of wealth and economic growth, and formerly comfortable Afrikaners see themselves as victims of reverse apartheid. In spite of this, white South Africans still control most of the country's economy. Everything about this scene supports the notion that white South Africans have it pretty good. This suggests that there is another side to the story. White poverty in South Africa has doubled since the non-racial election in 1994. People like Elsa B. Blignot are stepping in to help. She goes door to door in poor white areas with bags of food. When I first met Sis and her family, they were all sleeping on the floor around the cement. They had no beds, they had no furniture, they had absolutely nothing. Living conditions similar to what you will find in many of the black townships. This tiny house is a home for two families. So all 11 people sleep in this house? Yes. It's very small though. Very, very small. Laura Fenter and her children, her sister's family, her mother Petronella Casimir lives here too. And they all survive on her $94 a month pension. Petronella believes there is only one reason why they are in this desperate state. It started, she says, when the black government came to power 15 years ago. In the past, we were, uh, the apartheid years, and the white people uh, put them down and had no time to put us down. It is a common feeling among white South Africans who have fallen on hard times. They are the victims, they say, of affirmative action or what they call reverse discrimination. Virtually every person in this room feels that way. They all lived and worked during the apartheid era. They are left with meager pensions and come to this community center twice a week for a free meal. They don't talk openly, but ask a few questions and the bitterness rises. I'm sorry, but it's the truth. The black, sorry, it's the truth. Getting the job. The white people is staying behind. First the black and then the white, and that is the truth. It is true that South Africa has its own version of affirmative action. It's called black economic empowerment, and it was seen as vital in the new South Africa. Go to any one of the government ministries in Pretoria today, and most of the civil servants are black. 
It used to be that most of the faces you'd see on the streets here were white. Under the apartheid system, if you were a white person, you got a job. He very badly at school, didn't go to university, were a bit of a liar about. You would find your way into the state apparatus, you'd become a bureaucrat or something like that. Of course, it wasn't just government workers, the entire labor market changed. Years later, blacks and whites are now competing for jobs on equal terms. And whites don't always come out on top. Dirk van der Drado is a mechanic. I haven't been able to find a job for six months. I used to be on the streets. He's now got a one-room house on a small plot of land. This camp was set up by a nearby community organization, mainly white. Without it, the people here would be homeless. There are settlements like this all across South Africa, but what makes this one special is that the man who could be this country's next president came here to visit. Jacob Zuma, now the president of the ANC, was said to be shocked at the conditions. And I was very keen as one of those who believe that all South Africans should live in harmony. There should be no South African who must live in poverty, whether white or black or yellow. His visit drew attention to an issue that wasn't comfortably discussed in South African society. In a country where the vast majority of poor people are black, it seemed wrong to talk about a few poor white people. Coverage of the Zuma visit changed that. Yeah, I was shocked because really? I couldn't believe it. Why? Why? Because, you know, in the apartheid, whites used to get everything, and blacks were the ones who were suffering. So it was a shock to see that. And how did you feel when you saw it? How did it make you feel? Uh, I felt uncomfortable because I couldn't believe it. You know, it's okay with blacks because we used to it, but whites are unbelievable. Uh, did you feel sorry for them? Yeah, I did feel sorry for them. Traveling around, speaking with people in the black community, we were told that when it comes to poverty, color shouldn't matter. When you see a, a, a white child who's five years old, who's homeless, it, it, it evokes in you the, the same feelings that it would evoke when you see a black child because that's what our struggle was about, a response, a moral response to suffering and poverty and injustice. For World Focus, I'm Martin Seemungle in Johannesburg. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Speaker, and uh, the leadership of the EFF. This is a motion that seeks to unite black people in South Africa. And ordinarily, if leadership was provided, we shouldn't be having this debate because the land should have been returned into the hands of the rightful owners. We all know that uh, the Dutch gangster arrived here and took our land by force. And uh, the struggle has since been about the return of the land into the hands of rightful owners. Yet those who went to negotiate on behalf of our people during the negotiations sold out this fundamental principle which constituted the struggle against colonialism. So those who claim to be radical enough and who want radical change today should... Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Speaker. 
and the, the leadership of the EFF. This is a motion that seeks to unite black people in South Africa. And ordinarily, if leadership was provided, we shouldn't be having this debate because the land should have been returned into the hands of the rightful owners. We all know that uh, the Dutch gangster arrived here and took our land by force. And um, the struggle has since been about the return of the land into the hands of rightful owners. Yet those who went to negotiate on behalf of our people during the negotiations sold out this fundamental principle which constituted the struggle against colonialism. So those who claim to be radical enough and who want radical change today should actually be in the forefront of agreeing that this constitution must be changed to make it possible for our people to own the land. It can be correct that the less than 10% of the population owns almost more than 75% of the land. And those people who own the land happen to be, in an acceptable language, private uh, people like individuals, trusts, and companies. But when you search deep as to who are these people, these are white people who are still owning our land. We remain a conquered nation, even when we claim to have democracy. We remain a conquered nation because white monopoly capital still owns the means of production, and at the center of that is the land question. The dominance of white people, it cannot go away, particularly white supremacy for as long as land is not returned into the hands of the people. We are the only country where we say revolution has taken place, yet those who are oppressing us have not lost anything after the revolution. We remain as we were even before 1994. So we are saying that black people, all of us, we need to unite and amend the constitution so that we can expropriate land without compensation. There is no white person who will understand that clarion call because they don't know the pain of being landless. Only those who have gone through a passage of being landless will appreciate where we come from on the issue of the land. The issue of the land cannot be a campaigning issue. The issue of the land cannot be a rhetorical question. The issue of the land should be an issue of commitment. Honorable members, we have taken an oath here. And when we take an oath, we are simply saying we are loyal to the land. But how can we be loyal to the land which is in the hands of private individuals? We must be loyal to the land that belongs to us. Majority of our people say South Africa belongs to them. Yet they do not have proof to show that indeed South Africa belongs to them. Because many of them do not even know how a title deed looks like. Many generations died without even knowing how a title deed looks like. It is only through the expropriation of land without compensation that our people will be the rightful owners 
of this country. We cannot keep on saying South Africa belongs to all who live in it, yet we have nothing to show. Today the ANC should come with the EFF, there is 6% available, we give it to you without no condition to, uh, to amend the constitution and take the land. If you don't agree with us today, it means you are disagreeing with Honorable Ayanda Drodlo. If you don't agree with us today, it means you don't, you don't agree with your outgoing president on the issue of expropriation of land without compensation. Even the Minister of Land, this is a matter that can unite black people. This is a matter that all of us should stand together and isolate white monopoly capital. This is a matter that can say to us, this is a genuine call which we as black people can identify with. So the ANC, 6% Shiona, Relefayona, Arjen Lefase, Rilimeng, Arjen Lefase, Rare di Feme, Arjen Lefase, Refebat Barna, Babele Marae, Babele, a place to call home. Honorable Nzimande, we have already started taking the land. If you vote against this, it's a waste of time. We are already giving our people the land, and we are not ashamed of that. People of South Africa, where you see a beautiful land, take it, it belongs to you. Honorable Gwenya Mabila. Okay, today is It's My House in Santa South Africa, Land Hijack 2.0, the last three numbers, 619-768-2945. You just heard jo uh, Julius, Julius Malima. He used to be a part of the ANC, uh, matter of fact, president of the Af African National Congress Youth League, and now he has started his own political party. I think he started in 2003, Economic Freedom Fighters. And well, you just heard what he said. Uh, take a piece of land, you know. But what he's advocating is that South Africans, Black South Africans, uh, well, he wants to. He's trying to do it politically right now, with no violence, although violence is happening. But what he wants to do, or what his economic freedom fighter. What his political party called the Economic Freedom Party, what they want to do is get the current constitution of South Africa changed where land of white farmers, let me break it down this way. They want the constitution changed where land, that the government can expropriate land, which means basically take it. And not give any compensation. The current, and this is different from eminent domain. Actually, it's more drastic than eminent domain. Um, right now, they have the land can be expropriated in South Africa with due process and with compensation. That's currently on the books right now. All right. Now, they have voted, and I think it's passed or something like that, um, where they can, you know, expropriate land without uh, compensation. Now, 
they're talking about primarily the land of white farmers. All right. There's a lot more land available, but all they want is the land for white farmers. So let me play some other clips so you can get, because we're going to have to cover this in about two or three days. But anyway, let's go to the next clip on land or death. After the end of apartheid in South Africa, Nelson Mandela's African National Congress was hailed by the world as the leader in the creation of a new socially just progressive rainbow nation, a place where all races would coexist peacefully under a prosperous and fair communist system. But in recent years, we haven't heard much of this idyllic progressive Garden of Eden at all. In fact, the international press doesn't speak of South Africa's political situation very much at all. And when they do, the stories stand in stark contrast to the idea of a rainbow nation. My conversation with farmers and many of the country's white minority made South Africa seem like a nation on the verge of total collapse. So I decided I would try to at least have a conversation with a representative of the ANC in an attempt to understand what they believe is going on. Tabo McQuenna is a man that I've been advised is a powerful force within the ANC. McQuenna is a member of the party's provincial executive committee, has been responsible for the running of South Africa's municipalities, and has been granted multi-million rand contracts by the government in Johannesburg. Here were his thoughts on the current state of the nation. In the past 20 years, we have done very well to try and you know, build uh, that vision of a rainbow nation, build the economy of our country, compete internationally uh, on, on, on businesses, on sports, on culture. Uh, there is like, you know, relative safety uh, in the country. We've got the best infrastructure in the world uh, in terms of like, you know, our transport uh, systems and um, um, even like, you know, uh, policing and, 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 and safety and that kind of a thing. In a country with one of the highest crime rates, a failing police force, and some of the worst transport systems in the world, these claims struck me as simply untrue. I was getting the sense that Tabo was giving me a government-sanctioned version of the truth. But nevertheless, I pressed on. Particularly, I wanted to know about what everyone keeps calling the land issue, that being the expropriation or redistribution of land from white farmers to the black population, something all of the country's major parties have promised to do. To an outsider, this sounds just a little unfair and like something that would stand in direct contrast to the Rainbow Nation mantra. So I asked Tabo to explain it to me. So there's been like very slow progress in terms of addressing the land or redistributing the land. So so we must speed up. And it's not the question that government does not have money for compensation or there is no money for compensation in the system. I think it's just part of the problem is that the bureaucracy is way too slow and then it undermines, you know, um, the good objective. So you need to have like cutthroat departments that understand the agency and the plight of the people. When they are required to do their work, they must do it. 
Are things leaning more towards with or without compensation? <laughs> I don't know. I'm Look, the, the, the decision that has been taken, it's without compensation. As strange and radical as the notion of the government simply taking one person's land and giving it to another because of their skin color may sound to the outside world, Tabo's politics actually quite accurately reflect the rest of South Africa's ruling party. Land expropriation without compensation could be carried out at any time, a threat which has only deepened racial divisions here. Many of these farmers are now the eighth or ninth generations of their family to be farming this land, and they have told me they believe this land is worth dying for, which is why I was curious as to what the government planned on doing if white farmers simply refused to give up their land. There's nothing that government can do that is illegal to the farmers. Neither there is nothing that the farmers can refuse which is uh, which is law. So they don't have much options. It is not the intention of the ANC um, to go and grab the land illegally and then that type of thing. No. We will do it within the prescripts of the laws of this particular country. And then if it means that the laws of this country are not adequate to address that, the first thing to do is to introduce the new laws that allows us to be able to. But once it's law, no farmer no um, person that can come and say that I am going to uh, disobey this law. No, do it at your own peril. So it may be illegal to take the land by force using violence right now, but Tabo seemed to be saying that if whites don't give it up willingly or if they resist, huh, we'll just change the law to allow us to take it violently. This answer took me by surprise, considering the ANC has done a pretty good job of keeping up appearances. But it seems their politics have strayed further from the Rainbow Nation mantra over the years as their rhetoric more closely mirrors extremist groups like Black First Land First, who proudly tout the line, land or death, by which they're referring to the death of white farmers. Black people have been patient enough of the view that we have to fight in order to attain freedom as the black majority in this country. And the fight has to be located in taking back the land and expropriating it back into the people, in seizing the means of production and expropriating everything, or rather redistributing everything equally. And a society that would embody a value system that puts black people first will have to be attained through, 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 through confrontation, unfortunately, through confrontation, unfortunately, because our people have waited for so long, right? We've waited for so long and, and, and nothing is happening in terms of changing our lived experience. So it's very important to have a movement such as BLF who's going to say, we don't want your handovers. We don't want you to feel pity for us. We are coming for you and we are going to get everything that you owe. It's ours. Talking to South Africa's black political class, it's quite clear that the image of the Rainbow Nation we have been sold doesn't quite live up to its promise. In fact, many of the predictions about expropriation of land and civil unrest I heard from rural white farmers are actually echoes of promises spilling from the mouths of the politicians themselves. The question of war in this country is inevitable. It's definitely coming. We are going to fight. 
There is only one logical conclusion here. If things continue the way the ruling government, the activists, and the media are pushing them, and without a major change in the political establishment or serious intervention from Western media and charity, South Africa could very well be looking at a bloody future that will only culminate in almost unimaginable problems for the country. Thank you so much for watching this video. I just wanted to let you know that this is actually just a short clip from a much larger documentary project I'm working on called Farmlands. Now there are a million ways you can help with this project and spread the word about the situation going on in South Africa. If you want to know how you can do that, go down to the links below or visit farmlands.online. I'll see you next time. While I've been in South Africa, I've heard a number of heartbreaking stories, but there is one that struck me on a very personal level. I met Janine on my journey through the Karoo, where I've been listening to some horrific accounts of murder, rape, and robbery. Like many other white farming families, Janine's was torn apart in one of South Africa's daily farm attacks. I sat down to hear her story firsthand. We, we are on our third generation on this farm, <laughs> third generation. My grandfather farmed here um, until he died of a heart attack. And then my dad inherited this portion and his brother inherited the top farm, which my dad eventually over the years bought back. So it's been in the family for more than 100 years. I grew up here, um, myself and my three siblings grew up here, went to school in Hrofnet, which I'm sure you came through. And then went to study in Cape Town, and yeah, it was always our dream to come back. And it was always the intention to come back, not under these circumstances, though. My dad was living alone. My mum was in an Alzheimer's home. So this is quite hard. Because we were so safe here, there was actually no handle on the back door. It was always open. And um, this security gate was right here. So my dad heard the knock on the door, opened the door, was shot in the stomach. Managed to get to the phone. Yeah. Phone my aunt, said I've been shot in the stomach, put the phone down, phoned our neighbour, and while he, was, he said to Jeremy, I've been shot, and while he was on the phone to Jeremy, Jeremy heard the shots just kept going, and there was one shot that ricocheted against that wall, all the time my dad's being shot, back, arms, legs, and my dad slumped over this chair, slumped forward over this chair, and he was shot in the back of the head here, just execution style in the back of the head. So it was eight, they found eight cartridges, but six, he was shot six times. So this is where my dad died. He was killed. Okay. I know, for what, you know, for what, he was a good man, he was an awesome man, and to shoot somebody six times, execution to start. Gotta take a breather, please. I think it gets easier than it never does, unfortunately. My dad was, and knew he would back me up, and everybody would back me up. My, my dad was the most loving person.
he would literally give me the shirt of his back to help you. There were so many farmers and nurses that were battling that my dad would say, yeah, use my back and get on your feet. Do that. And he cold-bloodedly just came for and So all they took, um, about 20,000 rand in the safe, they took that, helped themselves to feed and fridge, and then hit the road. especially remarkable, nor is it out of the ordinary. What is remarkable is her resilience. Like many of her people, Janine has returned to the farm where her father was killed to rebuild her life in the face of unspeakable horror. He's killed two people. He's destroyed two families. And he's got 15 years. With these 15 years, he can sit for six six years and he'll come back. And he'll probably come and kill us or kill another farm because he knows how easy it is that he's got away with it. So justice hasn't been saved yet. These kind of attacks are not uncommon in South Africa. In fact, the statistics show a white farming family is attacked every single day. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. And they're targeting the vulnerable. You know, the 65 plus. That's who they're targeting. And it is just going to get worse. And then the farmers are going to leave. They're going to have no choice but to leave. Are the government doing anything about this? No. Nothing. The government have, have done nothing. I haven't heard from a government official. Not once. Not at all. No phone call, nothing. So what the intention is, it remains a mystery to us. Janine and other families like hers have told me they are not convinced these brutal attacks are just random acts, but that the South African government may very well be complicit in allowing them to happen as they continue their political agenda to drive out white farmers and take their land. With overwhelming agreement, Unanimous agreement has resolved that the expropriation of land without compensation should be amongst the mechanisms available to government to give effect to land reform and redistribution. That is what is important. While watching the crime rate skyrocket against white farmers and the government's rhetoric get more radical, I can only help but wonder how much worse is this going to get in the coming years. Hey guys, this video is just one of the many stories I want to show you from my trip here in South Africa. In fact, when I get back, I plan on working on a longer form documentary about the entire trip. If you'd like to find out more about how you can support that project and other stories being told like this one, 
or if you'd like to find out about the people in the stories and how you can support them and the farmers of South Africa, please check out the links in the description below. And of course, a big thank you to everyone who has been supporting this trip and been super encouraging to me and this channel. It means the world to me. I'll see you next time. Okay, so murders in South Africa uh, of white farmers, uh, and that's before the Constitution you know, was voted on changing the Constitution, which is expropriation of land without compensation. Now, <clears throat> there are two other African countries that have tried this, and it hasn't worked. Uganda under Idi Amin, Idi Amin was alive before he was he took off out of Uganda. He ordered the white folks and the Asians out of the country. They invited them back in. Um, Zimbabwe. Let's take a listen to what's happening there, because they took their land too, the white farmers. Also in Africa, Zimbabwe has announced plans to return some farms to their former white owners. Now this comes 15 years after the government sanctioned widespread land grabs that plunged Zimbabwe into economic chaos. But many say the announcement is as confusing as it is exciting. CCTV's Farah Mukatsiu reports. It's been a decade and a half since hundreds of thousands of landless blacks moved onto vast white-owned farms. Questions have surrounded Zimbabwe's land reform program since day one, from how the land was acquired, whom it was given to, and how productive they've been. Clearly, there's no letting up on those questions as more of them arise, this time questioning what role white farmers will have going forward. According to state media, farms deemed to be of strategic economic importance will be allowed to remain in the hands of white farmers. Output of major crops, save for tobacco, are below par, leaving what was once Africa's breadbasket a net importer of food. That could be why some former landowners are being re-engaged. If you're running a capitalist economy, you obviously want to be able to grow your crops at, 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 at rates where, which will give you a huge profit on the international market. And you also want to be able to feed your people because once you have a food problem in your own country, that ties your hands. You, don't, you can't make much of policy of anything. This is a way of being pragmatic in a capitalist economy. But could this amount to betrayal? A new farmer I spoke to doesn't think so. Widimai Mushonga, who was settled on his 120 hectare farm in 2004, told me that any Zimbabwean, whether white or black, should be allowed to farm provided land is available. For him, there's one overriding objective. We want to, 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 to increase our production as Zimbabweans. The white-dominated Commercial Farmers Union says about 800 of its members have applied for land. None of them have been successful. On the one hand, you're seeing government doing steps to issue offer letters to six farmers, and on the other hand, we're seeing government 
and people being evicted off their farms, led by government and, and senior politicians and all that. One of these particular farmers that we are talking about has been notified in March, the beginning of this year already, that they would be getting an offer letter, and to this day still waits to see the offer letter and receive it. So we haven't seen any movement, we haven't seen any development that they are going to receive it yet. The union remains cautiously optimistic as it and others watch yet another turn in this complex Zimbabwe land issue. Farai Mokutuya, CCTV, Harare, Zimbabwe. All right. Now, Zimbabwe did what South Africa is attempting to do, and it didn't work out. And white farmers are back in. Uh, Uganda, same thing. And when I'm looking at the bigger picture, because um, Julius Malema, matter of fact, let me, because he's a central figure in this. Um, in, 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 in his party, which is uh, the Economic Freedom Fighters. That's the name of his party. You can go read about them online. Um, and you can go to Wikipedia and read about Julius Malema specifically. Julius Malema is anti-capitalist. You can go on Wikipedia and read it right now. He's anti-capitalist. And he wants, well, political party that he started, Economic Freedom Fighters. That's his political party. They want basically the government to own all the land. So if you're an entrepreneur of sorts, they ain't hear it. But what I see happening is just like it happened in um, Uganda, and it's easier easier to trace in Uganda, uh, not Uganda, Zimbabwe with Robert Mugabe, is Robert Mugabe, because it sounds grand, let's take the land back from our oppressors. Sounds terrific if you're a black African. But then he ends up getting the land. But Robert Mugabe, he he became a billionaire out of the deal. Okay. And on top of that, I mean, because he's got homes in Switzerland and probably an apartment in London someplace. Um, his political cronies they're the ones who got the land. If you weren't in his circle, you got left ass out. You got used for your vote. And I'm saying the same thing is going to happen in South Africa. Let's say they get, you know, they get control of the government, which they have control, and they get this this amendment in there, expropriation of land without compensation. And mind you, there's already 
a lot of land out there already. They're only talking about the developed land from profitable farmers, white farmers. And see what's going to happen is, in another 20 or 30 years, they'll have control of it again, white folks. Uh, let me oh, let me go back to Julius Malumi because, like I so said, you can read up on him, but uh, he's a terrific orator. Uh, let me, and then I'll open up the phone lines uh, if I can fuck. Uh, where is he at? Julius. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I played them already. Here, can't, uh, let me look on my other contraption here. Julius Malima, let's see. Okay. Right. It's weird. Huh, okay. All right, well, let's go to the lines right now. But we're going to cover this today, tomorrow. And next week, because there's a lot, there's a lot of groundwork. We're even going to go probably next week to the roots of it. How whites got control of some of the land? They didn't get control of all of it, but how did they get in control of it in the first place? Now, if you hear Malima tell a story, it was by force of hundred percent. But then you listen to some other people, and they traded guns, alcohol, uh, you know, guns and arms. I mean, arms, which is guns, and alcohol and other trinkets or whatever. And that's how they got the land. Probably a combination of both of them. Then another facet we're going to cover is it, look look at how a lot of land disputes or property disputes go on today. Family members fighting. Husband and wife fighting, sister and brother fighting, siblings fighting. This is in 2018. And instead of get letting you have the land or the piece of property, they sell it to somebody else. Stranger. Well, that's nothing new. That, that happened when all this went down. So it's not one particular thing. In any event, let's go to the phone lines. Oh, and here, here's the thing I want to bring out. Once they, because they already voted on this, expropriation of land without compensation. So let's say that passes and they get into the, they get into the enforcement stage. And they, because you already heard one of the audios, they're killing people. People, there are people who have killed white farmers in South Africa, and they got a free pass from the government. All right. Now, so let's say you, you got the land, and it's 100% black, but the Constitution 
hasn't been changed again. So you got black farmers in there or black folks because they're going to be political appointees who get this late. It's not going to be your rank and file black farmer in South Africa. It's going to be the political appointees. If you look at what happened in Zimbabwe uh, with Robert Mugabe's people and uh, Uganda and Idi Amin, the rank and file everyday African will not get that land. It's going to be from political cronyism. That's that's who's going to get that land. A handful of people. But the laws are on the books where they change the law. And the people that are running the game, nobody talks about, are the invisible bankers. The invisible bankers bankroll both sides of the table. That's who won the the expropriation without compensation on the books. It's the invisible bankers that nobody talks about. So when you do get your all-black land back, within 20 to 30 to 50 years, the bankers will have all that land again. You look at Washington, D.C., it ain't chocolate city no more, same shit happened. Detroit. Detroit won't have the demographics it had under Coleman Young. But like I say, this is a very broad subject. Estate planning needs to be taught on both sides of the ocean. Once you get a piece of property, you know, how can you keep it in the family? Because you're going to have to get political for, you know, the next two to 300 years or more. You're going to have to get political. In any event, we're just laying the groundwork today. Like I said, we played about four or five, about five or six videos on this. I don't know what happened because I, I wanted to play that Joseph Malima again. But G, read up on Joseph Malima. Excellent, excellent orator. But if you read his bio, the man's anti-capitalist. He wants the government to basically control everything. Which is that's why the name of his organization kind of confuses me. Economic freedom fighter. How can you be an economic freedom fighter when you want the government to control 100 percent of the land? Like, anyway, but that's why we want to play more information in um, um on this. Let's go. Uh, well, hold it. Yeah, let's go to the phone lines right now. Seven seven three. Your mic is open. Good morning. You don't have to go to Africa for that to be happening. You can do that right here in the United States. Let Let's go right. back to Emmett Till's. Let's go back to Emmett Till's and know what those those people had to do. They grabbed him, killed him, and they had to leave the land. So we don't have to go. To, what uh, we yeah, have to go that, to that's Africa. That's what happened. That's what happened. Yeah, you're right. And they killed. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, they, and and no, and see that's the part that nobody talks about. No. Who got control of that 25 acres of land that had a cash crop of of, of cotton that was in harvest mode, ready to harvest? See, that's the part that nobody talks about. And see, that's what I'm talking about with this this South Africa thing. 
you know. Yeah, they, um, if it if it applies to one, it applies to all, and that's the reason why those people had to leave, either leave or die. So, like the yeah. young man did it out. He died trying to protect his land. So, <laughs> if you don't have a vested interest and have a political interest in this country, uh, in Africa, you have no say-so to control anything. And a few of the cronies are going to be the people that, that have that vested interest are going to be the ones, as you stated, will have the say-so on who gets what. Right. And that's not confusing for the government to control everything. That's ridiculous. That it is, is totally ridiculous. And if you think you can have a rainbow coalition uh, and a, a rainbow, uh, rainbow, rainbow uh, nation of people that's not violent, then you're crazy. Because it has never worked. It never will work. So people that's black is going to stick together and own the land and own their surrounding countries. Independent nation of people will make it fine. A rainbow nation of people is not going to make it at all. That's what I read out of it. Not going to make it at all. Because look at your educational system. Your educational system is brainwashing you on a daily basis. Because who has control? Your white supremacy has control of the agendas that's taught to our children. And it's taught every day right here in America, and it's also being taught in Africa. So you better get your act together because look at the uh, the, the, the children that has came out in force and said they're going to do something about this gun thing or else. If we, supposedly the leadership of our families and communities, schools, towns, and the lady said she want she don't want to see how bad it's gonna really get. It's getting worse every day, every day. Look at these kids going into school with the guns and killing each other. You know what that happened? You know what happened with that? Nineteen sixty four. The law was changed in Western D.C. by the government and took the rights of the parents and and the teachers away took the rights of the parent and the teachers to stop discipline their children. Since nineteen sixty four, do the research on how many violent cases has happened in our school system, right in our communities, right in our doors, in the police force and all the rest. White supremacy it has almost taken over. It's the reason Trump is doing what he's doing today. Look at that system, how it has elevated itself. It's apartheid in America right now. Right now. Look how many black men have been in jail in America, and look at the jails that has been built by by the Democratic Party. Look how many people have been put in jail by the Democratic Party because you didn't have a vested interest in your politics. You're 100% right. You have to get politically involved. And politically involved means that you're going to make your own system so that you'll have a voice and 
the, the politics of what goes on in your country, any country. Now, let's take it to another step. What about the Mexicans in, in Mexico coming to America, building a wall? Reagan just tore down a wall, a wall in one of those countries. Why did he tear down that wall? Because it's white supremacy. You know, I just, I just thought of something pleasant. I just thought of something pleasant. The funding yeah. ever came through, and they actually and they actually started to build that wall. Here's here's what's going to end up happening: the people that will end up building the wall will be Mexicans because they work at a cheaper rate. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's, what, that's what's going to happen if that ever comes through. Yeah. Yeah. I tell you, it, it, you, you, you're 100% right. Better get politically involved and understand what's going on in this world. Not just in Africa, it's in America as well. Right. Yeah, it, it is. And that's why I say it. What, what you see happen in Africa, um, it, 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 it can morph out over. Because people now in the United States, you can, with these housing courts they set up, uh, you can lose yeah. your house to not be in a water bill. Um, uh, yes, just minor things yes, that you know you can put the, they can put the government can put a lien against your house, and then a lot yeah. of your major cities, um, like the fire department and the police department, they're unionized. Unionized them, yeah. now when you have unionized employees, unionized employees are not cheap. They're expensive. No. I was talking to uh, a guy a couple of days ago, um, and uh, he was selling, matter of fact, he's from Chicago. I think he was part of the union when he was getting like $52 an hour. You, you, mm-hmm. you All right. Now, when you put, now, I'm not knocking that. I'm not knocking that. When you have unionized fire workers, which are city employees, unionized uh, police, uh, you know, law enforcement uh which is unionized. And then you have these entitlement programs, Section 8, WIC, and all that other stuff. Something's got to get. Something's got to get. Are you going to That's cut right. back and cut out the unionization with your city workers that are unionized, or are you going to cut out the – I personally mean personally, I'd rather see a fire worker or a law enforcement worker get union wages than these Section 8 people. Because a, a lot, not all, a lot of the people that get on these entitlement programs, uh, in my opinion, don't need. And the ones that really need it, a lot of them don't even get on. But that's a whole well, let's go back. Yeah, now let's go back and look at the entitlement program, why and how it was created. It was created because the people didn't have anything when they were freed from slavery, or supposedly freed from slavery. But if you have nothing and you're standing on the edge of your slave owner and your slave owner have an opportunity for you to work and earn, and earn a living to feed yourself and give you a shed to live in, like we were living in sheds when uh, we, got, we came from Africa. If he allows you, old John, to... Uh, to uh, and you feed it. Don't pay him. Just feed it. How long do you think he's going to work? 
is going to work forever because he want to feed himself and his family. And he has no right to none of the land that he's working on. None. Because he was supposedly freed with 40 acres and a mule, which he never got. And that system was already put in place by the federal government, by the federal government and the Constitution of the United States. Yes, sir. That's yeah, what happened. Good points you bring it up. Good points you bring uh-huh. it up. Yeah, good points you bring yeah. it up. Um, That's what happened. You never got the forty acres in the mule because you could have provided for yourself. But you had to have forty yeah. acres in the mule and the seed to plant your crop. How are you going to have forty acres in the mule and the seed to plant your crop when you don't have a shack to live in? Yes, sir. Uh, pleasant. I ran out. I found. Uh, what I thought I played. Uh, hold on. I thought I. Yeah, I did. Let me f- play that. I'm going to play back the uh, Julius Malima. Yeah, let me play this. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Speaker and the leadership of the EFF. This is a motion that seeks to unite black people in South Africa. And ordinarily, if leadership was provided, we shouldn't be having this debate because the land should have been returned into the hands of the rightful owners. We all know that uh, the Dutch gangster arrived here and took our land by force. And um, the struggle has since been about the return of the land into the hands of rightful owners. Yet those who went to negotiate on behalf of our people during the negotiations sold out this fundamental principle which constituted the struggle against colonialism. So those who claim to be radical enough and who want radical change today should actually be in the forefront of agree that this constitution must be changed to make it possible for our people to own the land. It can't be correct that the less than 10% of the population owns almost more than 75% of the land. And those people who own the land happen to be, in an acceptable language, private uh, people like individuals, trust, and companies. But when you search deep as to who are these people, these are white people who are still owning our land. We remain a conquered nation, even when we claim to have democracy. We remain a conquered nation because white monopoly capital still owns the means of production, and at the center of that is the land question. The dominance of white people, it cannot go away, particularly white supremacy for as long as land is not returned into the hands of the people. We are the only country where we say revolution has taken place, yet those who are oppressing us have not lost anything after the revolution. We remain as we were even before 1994. So we are saying that black people, all of us, 
We need to unite and amend the Constitution so that we can expropriate land without compensation. There is no white person who will understand that clarion call because they don't know the pain of being landless. Only those who have gone through a passage of being landless will appreciate where we come from on the issue of the land. The issue of the land cannot be a campaigning issue. The issue of the land cannot be a rhetorical question. The issue of the land should be an issue of commitment. Honorable members, we have taken an oath here. And when we take an oath, we are simply saying we are loyal to the land. But how can we be loyal to the land which is in the hands of private individuals? We must be loyal to the land that belongs to us. Majority of our people say South Africa belongs to them, yet they do not have proof to show that indeed South Africa belongs to them, because many of them do not even know how a title deed looks like. Many generations died without even knowing how a title deed looks like. It is only through the expropriation of land without compensation that our people will be the rightful owners of this country. We cannot keep on saying South Africa belongs to all who live in it, yet we have nothing to show. Today the ANC should come with the EFF, there is 6% available, we give it to you without no condition to, uh, to amend the constitution and take the land. If you don't agree with us today, it means you are disagreeing with Honorable Ayanda Drodlo. If you don't agree with us today, it means you don't, you don't agree with your outgoing president on the issue of expropriation of land without compensation. Even the Minister of Land, this is a matter that can unite black people. This is a matter that all of us should stand together and isolate white monopoly capital. This is a matter that can say to us, this is a genuine call which we as black people can identify with. So the ANC, 6% Shiona, Relefayona, Arjen Lefase, Rilimeng, Arjen Lefase, Rare di Feme, Arjen Lefase, Refebat Barna, Babele Marae, Babele, a place to call home. Honorable Nzimande, we have already started taking the land. If you vote against this, it's a waste of time. We are already giving our people the land, and we are not ashamed of that. People of South Africa, where you see a beautiful land, take it, it belongs to you. Honorable Nguenya Mabila. Well, you heard what he said. He's the one that started the economic freedom fighters. You can read about him online. Julius Malima. Uh, but a lot of violence has happened that he didn't have anything to do with. I, I will say that. Uh, but people have acted on it. They saw a piece of land. White folks owned it. And uh, they 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 shot him and killed him. Um, now, tomorrow what we're going to do is we're going to cover something that he brought up. Who really owns the land? We're going to do a little history research. I'll lay a little ground right now. It will, it's really kind of a cultural thing. It doesn't have anything to do with black and white, but it's a cultural thing. 
and I think it applies here uh, with South Africa, of lifestyles that man, mankind lives. The nomadic lifestyle and the sedentary lifestyle. Nomadic lifestyle is basically, you know, you might move with the seasons. You know, you might, just like the birds do. You know, they, they, um, when they feel cold, winter coming on, they fly south. Okay. Because it's warmer, they know where to go get their food, water, reproduce that, that. And then when it gets warmer, then they fly back up north. All right. In a human, you know, bears hibernate. So in a human experience, you have people that are part of nomadic cultures. In in Mongolia, during the Genghis, Genghis Khan era, they were essentially nomads. You know, Africa, down throughout the centuries, even today, they have various nomadic cultures right here in North America, with the Western Hemisphere. You had Native Americans that basically in a nomadic culture, you know, they built like portable housing in Mongolia. They would build yurts, like like which are like round tents. Native Americans in the Western Hemisphere they would build teepees or dugout houses. All right, so. They would move to where there was, you know, adequate food, water, and building materials. Because, like I said, a lot of these people they they just work with what's there. All right, a lot of vegetation they can build their homes, feed their families, that type of thing. And they would move with the seasons. Some nomadic cultures move four times a year. Some do it twice a year. Same thing in the animal kingdom. Okay. So that that's a that's one basic lifestyle to mankind, the nomadic lifestyle. And if tomorrow we're going to look at the history of South Africa, and look at what the, the indigenous tribes, you know, the Kosovan, Bantu, what kind of lifestyle they had. Now the other type of lifestyle that people had, that mankind had would be, oh, matter of fact, let me throw in gypsies, okay? They're no matter. Now, the uh, other type of lifestyle, general lifestyle, because there's two, nomadic, move around, and then the other one's sedimentary, which is basically you find a spot, you call it home, well, you build, you build your house, your hut, Whatever your cat, whatever you want to call it, and you stay there. You might meet your mate there, have your family there, have your livelihood profession there. That's it. And like I said, tomorrow we're going to play some audio looking at the, the history of South Africa, trying to answer the question: Whose land is it anyway? And see, was the is the indigenous population were they sedentary or were they nomadic or did you have a combination of the two even back then? So we want to take a look at that because the Europeans that came in there, the Europeans that came in, the Dutch, 
that came in. They were coming from sedentary cultures. But a lot of those people, which they were pioneers, some of them had criminal records, some of them had a fresh start, and they didn't need, they were off the grid. Because if they were back in the in hollows of the Netherlands, you know, the same thing. Because you look at it. If you look at uh, parts of Western Europe, where, you know, 1400 and all that, they were on the grid. So the king, the throne, just like today, is looking for Protestants to make money. They can criminalize anything. I mean, if you're walking down the street at 9.05 a.m., they can say that's against the law. Crazy laws on them. So England had criminalized had criminalized a lot of human activity to the point where they sent people to Australia. Australia at one time, as many of you already know, was a penal colony for England. That little ass tiny ass island. Okay, and. Uh, when they started coming over here to uh, what we now call the United States, the state of Georgia was a penal colony for England. Right. So a lot of people um, in some of these other European let's, let's go to Holland, the Dutch. You know what? I can. I, you know what? I can go down to this place. There's hardly any people there. I don't need, there's, there's no rules and regulations like there is in, in, in the, the Netherlands at this point in time. I'll be off the grid. I can get a fresh. That's why a lot of whites, I mean, Europeans ended up in South Africa from the giddy up anyway. Okay. So they had their lifestyle with the sedentary. I'm going to find me a spot. Nobody's around me, and I'm gonna go from there. Now, of course, that grew, that grew. But we're gonna we're gonna go. We may may have to take a couple of podcasts just to lay the foundation on the beginnings of this. Who really owned the land? And like, like, so we're gonna take a look at the indigenous uh, uh, and uh, uh, what's the I can't pronounce it. Uh, indigenous population first. Were they nomadic? And if you're a nomadic society, who owns the land? Because you're moving with nature. So we're going to put that question out there. We're going to take a look at today, too, because there's an abundance of land in South Africa right now that is wealthy. And people are fighting losing their lives over over uh oh let me make some turn to this over developed land. That's a whole other podcast. Thing is why don't you just buy up some of the, the undeveloped land that nobody has and do your own thing? Don't wait on the government. But I'm just one person. I just want to look like. Um, 
Listen, all right, so uh, Pleasant, uh, your mic is open. Any any closing comments here? Yeah, I want I want you to say that man that was speaking. I want to get him to my economic political summit that I hold every year, so that he can tell these people in America what's going on and how it works. He does a real good job of explaining it. And then my little add on to what he's talking about. We're having a, be a vested interest in the capitalistic system. And that's the only way that you're going to be able to control the land and the production that grows on the land. And then on top of that, the housing that you put on the land in, an, in a cooperated area, in an uncooperated, uncooperated area, that you can actually understand the difference. And people haven't been taught that. That's the reason for the the one-room schoolhouse. I don't know if that one-room schoolhouse is going to be uh, filled within a month, but it's going to take a year. But that one-room schoolhouse we're talking about building is going to be a viable piece of property to teach and re-educate people about ownership. If you don't own it, you can't control it. So those are my comments for today. Okay, well, we'll have it up uh, because I... uh... Man, I caught a cold or flu or something because I was all right two days ago. Um, I made a trip down to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and I was all right. That was Sunday when I went. So I was all right then. I was all right when I came back on Monday. And then uh, yesterday, that's why I didn't do a podcast yesterday. I was I was out here scrambling, getting get. The flu medication I was looking to get, which is really homeopathic, homeopath, because I really don't like to use chemicals that much, uh, was sold out in four places, man. It was all sold out. Uh, so I'm recovering from a cold slash flu. Um, but yeah, t- tomorrow we'll, uh, we're going to go look at the, the basic lifestyle of the uh, indigenous uh, communities. Um, well, look, look, oh, at, uh, look at what happened. Look at what happened to this country. This country was taken by force. This, this country wasn't just handover. It was taken by force. And if you look yep. at the indigenous people, who they call indigenous people today, those people were killed. They were killed. And then they brought in another indigenous people from Africa, which they, they enslaved. That's the way this got turned around. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. The United States, and it's interesting about the United States, um, the the mascot of the United States is the American bald eagle. And the eagle is a predator. Yeah. And that's what, <laughs> that's how this country became what it is. It, it's, um, there are a lot of good aspects about the United States, but it basically we're predators. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we do. We we prey, and predators typically prey on uh, on the weak. In any aspect of the human kingdom, the animal kingdom, the pet kingdom, there's essentially yeah. only attack. Uh, it's victims that appear to be weaker or are weak. That, that's, that's right. What, that's what predators do. That's yes, what sir. predators do. 
So, um, yeah, that's a whole other podcast in itself. But uh, on that note, I got to drink all these liquors. We'll see you tomorrow for tomorrow. So we're gonna go through the roots. Who really? Who really? I mean, the land in South Africa. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, if I could ever get this, it's like I'm on two computers here. I'm probably calling uh, you after. I call. I call you after okay, the show. Okay, give, give me about thirty minutes. Give me about thirty minutes. Okay. <laughs>